you're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Ayla Ellison. This is the second part of our series, Reconnecting with Fierce 15 Winners from 2019. The first year Fierce Healthcare published the list of 15 private companies engaged in pioneering work and making waves in healthcare innovation. Last week, you heard from Dr. Cameron Matthews, the Chief Health Officer of CityBlock Health, and Ned McCoy, the CEO of Civica Rx. This week on Podnosis, you'll hear from leaders of LMNO Health and Digital Diagnostics. First up, Fierce's Anastasia Koskia chats with Dr. Arup Roy Berman, the founder and chief medical officer at Elemento Health. The company bills itself as a virtual coach for frontline teams, offering micro-learnings at the point of care. Roy Berman reflects on Elemento's evolving mission to democratize information and its entry into new markets accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Here they are. Nice to talk to you. Thanks so much for making the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. So I wanted to start by talking about Elemento broadly. And I think it would be great if you could explain the namesake, what the name comes from. Sure. I'm a former ICU medical director, and they worked super close with frontline healthcare teams and realized very quickly that it really didn't matter what I said that needs to happen if my team couldn't execute on it. And we saw healthcare as being becoming increasingly complex, or really just moving at an exponential rate. And at the same time, we had our team members turning over faster than ever. And it was really, it's a recipe for disaster. I mean, you've got to find a way to get everybody on the same page and to keep them there. And we looked around, that is like, by we, I mean myself, our nurses, our RTs, our pharmacists, the whole team, on solutions that could help us. And we asked it, why is it in our consumer lives that technology is this great enabler? It's helping us to get what we need when we need it and the way we want it to help us to be our better selves. But in healthcare, the greatest manifestation of technology for us on the front lines was the EHR, the electronic healthcare record. And that is just full of force functions. And we found ourselves spending more and more time going click, 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 click on the computer, going away from the patient, losing our autonomy. And essentially, we managed to create the most expensive clerical workforce in the history of the planet. And it took the joy and the passion out of healthcare as well. We go into healthcare because we want to help people. And that interaction with the person is what brings us back time and again. And the gratitude expressed by that person when you help them, it's what brings you back over and over. And so how could we use technology to rather than being this force function, how could we use technology to help us, really to enable us to feel better, to be more confident that we could deliver high quality care into every life we touch? So that's a problem that we were looking at and looking to solve. and. We said, when you look in our, um, in our personal lives, that technology is coming at us from multiple platforms. It's not just from one big screen, but it's coming from the iPad, it's coming from the iPhone, it's coming from the Android, it's coming from our personal devices. 
And it's coming from us in short, little, multimedia, bite-sized chunks that we can quickly find and we can quickly digest. And so we took those principles and applied that to those best practices that we needed in healthcare. Healthcare is ultimately local. It's about not just about, hey, how do we do a central line dressing change? But how do we do it here in our house with our people, with the resources that we have available to us? It gets very nuanced. And nobody was helping to be able to close that last mile. Nobody in the way of technology. Rather, it was falling on frontline staff. Hey, put it in the binder, write a picture, um, draw something, stick it above the computer. Mm-hmm. Pass it through word of mouth. So we took that type of knowledge, that customized knowledge, created in bite-sized chunks, and delivered it on any device in that moment. And what that was doing was helping us to ultimately, now this gets to our name, help us to be able to elevate the quality of care that we were delivering to our patients. We were doing that by empowering the people on the front lines with knowledge, those little bite-sized nuggets that they need in the moment, contextual, just-in-time learning. And we were doing it in a way that was transparent of specialties. It's for nursing. There's information for the RT. There's information for the doctor. There's information for the other therapists. The issue around taking care of patients, especially in today's environments, is it is really a interprofessional effort. It's a team effort. And that last bit was, is by putting this information out there for everyone to see, we could see how we could each support each other. It was helping to engage us as one interprofessional team. And that's a long-winded way to get back to the story of our name. That EL is the core element. It comes from Mm -hmm. elevating quality. EM comes from that empowerment. And then EN comes from engaging. So that's L, M, and N. And we're about, let's make it fun. Let's keep it simple. Go back to those days of just um, tell me what I need to know right now. Reminds mm-hmm. us of that uh, the alphabet and children. Make it fun. Mm-hmm. Keep it simple. What's that letter? Elemento. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about the growth of Elemento because your company was among our inaugural Fierce 15 winners back in 2019. And at the time, I was reading through our original report. And in an interview with us, you said that Elemento was still a young company. And I'm wondering in what ways Elemento has matured since then. The biggest way that we have matured is that we have come to the understanding that healthcare in many ways is about money. The clinical side is about caring for patients. And that clinical side was about improving the care of patients, about decreasing medical errors. I mean, that is a whole nother story, but that's my inspiration for this company, was how could we reduce, how could we eliminate preventable errors? How could we assure our patients that we're going to give them the best care the right way every time? And we had some great early results with that. And we continue to have great results with that. That's what got us our initial publications. And that's what got the initial awareness. And that got the attention of unit directors or chief quality officers, patient safety advocates, But the reality was, is reducing errors is, you know, from a financial end, it's about 
reducing avoidable costs. And avoidable costs aren't built into hospital budgets. I often see that one of the big problems in healthcare is that you have, you've got clinicians and you have mm-hmm. administrators who are coming more from the business end and from the finance end. And for the clinicians, they love to talk about blood. They hate to talk about money. And for the administrators, they're very comfortable talking about money. Because after all, there is no mission without margin. They're happy to talk about money, but they're very uncomfortable in talking about blood. And you've got this problem that fundamental problem that the two key leaders in healthcare, the clinical side and the business side, are speaking two different languages. And it is very difficult for them to truly team together. And when we had a, a, a solution that was focused on patient safety and reducing avoidable costs, from the administration end, it's like, well, that's not helping me with my budget because I'm not budgeted for the cost of errors. What I'm budgeted for are hard costs, are specific items, or for labor hours. And that, for us, created a challenge about how fast we could grow. So during COVID, our clients who had Elemento were like, hey, this is great because I'm getting more and more turnover of staff. I'm getting travelers coming in and I don't have the time. And also we can't have, even from a safety end, I can't get all my people together and put them in the same room and sit down and do the same old thing. How about I start using Elemento for orientation and for onboarding? And now I can deliver that information in short bite-sized chunks that can be done asynchronously. They could be done even before the person has their first day at work. And importantly, since it's there at the point of care or anywhere, my staff can go back to it over and over and over when they need it. And so it created a way to make training easier and to make it sustainable because of that easy refreshability. This fundamentally affected dollars in the column of hard costs because now orientation times were going down. Hmm. The door to floor time was shortened because people were learning faster. The training was sustained because people could go back to that in the moment, in the course of their workday, or frankly, even when they're sitting on their bed at home. And so from an administrative end, it was like, hey, you're reducing my hard costs. That is a line on my budget. Awesome. And so that gets to where is our biggest pivot? We are still very much mission driven in reducing medical errors. But our lead when we are talking to institutions and the pain point that we are immediately helping for both sides of the coin, both the clinicians and the administrators, is shortening that time to value for onboarding and orientation. How did you respond as a company in terms of the tools and solutions you're offering when you saw the sort of burnout and turnover that was taking over during COVID? The, the point that we could deliver updated information very quickly and easily, that was huge for the leaders of those unit-based teams, ER leader, OR leader, ICU leader. And that helped us to really shine in the midst of COVID. So it helped those leaders make sure that their staff were getting the information they need to deliver care the right way and to deliver care safely. So their staff could feel 
more confident and secure in what they were doing. Another thing in COVID that was, I think, really industry changing is that we've seen gradually over the past couple decades how hospitals were trying to become more collaborative with each other. And that collaborative collaboration was coming, though, out of a business sense that we saw how you're getting concentration of the most complicated care, the tertiary care, the quaternary care in a handful of hospitals in the region. But those hospitals would be critically dependent upon referrals from all the smaller hospitals in the communities. And the major hospitals would be fighting with each other for that referral base. And they started to learn that, hey, rather than being the ivory tower, the more that I can do to support my community hospitals, to educate them on how to do things the right way, or how to make them confident that they can deliver good care in their house, the more likely those community hospitals were to turn around and refer patients to me. Hmm. Because it was all about relationships. And so there was already a move towards how can we share information, share knowledge to help others, especially those hospitals that are lower resourced. And COVID took it all to a next level because there it was only those tertiary quaternary centers that had the resources to be able to figure out how do we manage these COVID patients. And those smaller hospitals, they were really struggling here. And that's where more and more hospitals, even hospitals that were directly competing with each other were saying, hey, how can I help you? And so for us, that change, I don't know what called that change, or the acceleration of that change has been critical to our value because that goes back to our core beliefs. When we started this company, it, it was about radically improving patient safety and reducing medical errors. But it was to do that through the democratization of best practices, the democratization of knowledge, and to be able to help knowledge flow from the resource rich to the resource poor so that we could enable every healthcare provider to deliver the best care possible to every life they touch. And looking ahead to the future, what do you make of this ecosystem of information sharing and where it's headed? Whether we're talking about smaller practices or hospitals or or very large health systems, where do you see LMNO and and similar tools fitting in going forward? I think this is absolutely critical to the sustenance of healthcare. We are in, in every industry, we can see how we have become a global community. And we've seen COVID underscored for us in a global community when it comes to healthcare and how disease can spread. And we need global solutions as to how we can harness our global knowledge and apply that to solving problems. So I see a continued movement towards knowledge sharing. And it's one that when you look at our emerging workforce, there are all digital natives. They have grown up in a society where all that they know is about community and it's about sharing. Whether you're on TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram, any one of the social media platforms, if you're on any of the 
YouTube and, and these video platforms, it is all about sharing. So that's the way that, that we are moving. And for the history of healthcare, and, and I don't know if I can really put it nicely, there's a concept of old power and there's a concept of new power. Old power is this concept where everything is top down. And in this type of hierarchy where the, the front lines are just passive consumers of information, there is this kind of perverse idea of, of well, understanding that knowledge is power. And there's historically been so much kind of centralized control to information that's had healthcare moving very, very slowly, iterating very slowly. But as we've seen now in the consumer world and proven out in those new companies here, whether you are your Google, your Facebook, or any one of these social media companies, your Amazon, they thrive on engaging those front lines, the bottom, if you will, of that pyramid to move from being not just a passive consumer of information or passive consumer of orders, but to be an active member, to be able to rate content, to be able to share content, to be able to produce content. And with that, where we've seen the engagement and growth of those companies, it's been tremendous. Mm -hmm. There is a desire by the user to be part of this type of a new power ecosystem. And we're seeing that already starting to manifest in healthcare with what we are doing here in Elemento and that desire for the front lines to be able to, able to share what they're doing, to learn from each other, to be able to say what works, what doesn't, and to be able to accelerate change. And that involves a decentralization of power. It involves a flattening of the organization. It involves really bringing in those front lines to be an active member of the organization and the discussion. That's about new power. I see that happening in healthcare and it is going to be critical for healthcare to be able to keep pace with the kind of change, the need for ongoing innovation. That's, that's going to be essential. And for those healthcare workers, if they're not in a system where they have a voice and where that voice is heard and acted upon, they're going to say, forget it. Well, I'm going to sit here and do this. If this industry is not going to change, if this industry is not going to involve me and not going to support me, there are plenty of other things that I can do. Rube, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Alameno. Next, Fierce's Noah Tong catches us up with Digital Diagnostics. The Iowa-based company rose to prominence because of its AI system that enabled a specialist diagnosis for diabetic retinopathy in primary care setting. Noah interviews CEO John Bertrand about the company's global expansion, its approach toward value-based care, and the future of AI. Let's dive into the conversation now. Hi, John. Thanks for joining me. It's great to be here. In January 2019, Fierce highlighted your work, your company's work, even referring to the company as a, a David versus Goliath story. And by the end of that year, you were named CEO of the company after spending a long time with Epic Systems. I'd like to hear from you just about how Luminetics Core, how it works and why it's such a crucial product and what problems does it solve for the patient and provider? Luminetics Core is the FDA's first ever de novo clearance of a fully autonomous algorithm, meaning artificial intelligence, AI, is diagnosing the patient 
But unlike other applications, Luminetics Core is diagnosing the patient without the physician in the loop. The first use case is diabetic retinopathy, which is the leading cause of blindness. And what you essentially do as a patient, you show up to the primary care clinic as normal. Maybe you're going to lab or draw station. You could also be in a retail health setting. But as you're, you're traversing uh, your normal patient journey for a diabetic wellness visit, just a general visit to see your primary care doctor will alert the physician, hey, this patient doesn't have a diabetic eye exam or diabetic retinopathy test on file. And as you're bringing someone through, say, the vitals lane, you capture two to four additional images uh, through what's called a fundus camera. And our AI software layer then processes those images and gives you real-time point-of-care instantaneous diagnostic output. We have a CPT code for that, 9222, and it maps to ICD-10 as well. So your intents and purposes, you are lifting this work off of an eye care specialist, making it easy for the patient to access at the point of care. Could you talk to me a little bit about why IDX, that was what the company was named back in 2019, why it became Digital Diagnostics, and also why the product name changed? The company was founded in 2018, originally called IDX, and the product now we now call Lunatics Core was called IDXDR. When I joined in 2019, the founder, Dr. Eberhoff, and I really saw an opportunity to expand the application of the technology outside of the use case of diabetic retinopathy. Of course, there are many other things you can do in the eye that we've been working on for several years. Uh, but you also see the same use of the technology over in, say, the dermatology space in cardiac monitoring and remote diagnostics. There's more applications as well for the technology and many of the insights the company's developed over the years being the first in its field. So changing the name of the business was more to communicate the more expansive view we see in the diagnostic place or space, I should say, as far as AI is concerned. And then with the Luminatic score piece, that's Honestly, pure marketing, as you change the company's name, there's no longer IDX, IDXDR no longer makes sense. So we just took a step back and thought a little bit about how do we want to communicate what we're doing here. And we're working on light looking lumens, looking the back of the patient's eye, and it just seemed like a natural fit. So to my understanding, the product was first deployed at the University of Iowa Healthcare and has since been implemented elsewhere. How widespread is this like device today, your main Luminatics core? And what are all of its use cases? We did start with the University of Iowa right after the FDA clearance back in 2018. And that has to do a lot with Dr. Abramoff, our founder, chief scientific officer and chair, uh, originally being both an MD and a PhD professor at the university, where a lot of the technology was spun out of years ago. And just with that that laboratory working a lot of similar problems, they were really went ready to be early adopters of an FDA cleared product. So a lot of great lessons learning integrating into workflow for the first time and getting that done within a couple of weeks and figuring out that workflow was going to be a big part of what, what the storyline is behind the adoption of the product. And in fact, any AI product, I'd argue, it starts with workflow. Learned that at the University of Iowa. Since then, over 40 unique logos. We were at other large academics, Hopkins, Stanford, Mayo, some of the names you might recognize nationally, as well as a lot of the, the large value-based care chains. Diabetic retinopathy is not only reimbursed in the fee-for-service world, but it actually is a quality metric tied to a lot of value-based care incentive programs. So that could be in Medicare Advantage, getting a risk adjustment factor related to the patient when disease is detected, or you could be in a HEDIS-driven system, getting a bonus payment for getting over 80% of your patients tested for this particular disease set. Diabetic retinopathy or the diabetic eye exam, as it's more commonly named, is one of those tests that people have known for a long time early detection and early intervention leads to a lot of positive outcomes. 
So there's already a lot of just incentive and pull in the marketplace to find ways to get this test to patients. Has your company shifted its priority more to Medicare Advantage and value-based care? I don't know that it's it's changed much, but I think that's because we've thought differently from the beginning. We're a physician-founded company. Everyone around the business has been in healthcare for a long time. And the group kind of understood you need to work in both fee-for-service and value-based care. So we've followed both of those pathways in parallel. It wasn't like we got a, a fee-for-service code and reimbursement and then decided, hey, we should probably go try to prove this adds value in value-based care. It's our opinion that the best uh, opportunities are areas where both value-based care and fee-for-service are incentivizing that behavior. Because as you look across healthcare delivery, most people that are delivering care, if they're doing value-based care, are still in a mixed environment, meaning they're doing some fee-for-service and some value-based care. And they might not even really think about what bucket the patient's in when they're meeting, greeting, hearing the patient's story, starting to think through how to triage and diagnose the patient. That's, that's a portion of the puzzle, but you're more focusing on the patient first. There might not be something that you're really thinking through. And therefore, we want the product that we choose to be universally applicable in either financial model. That said, given value-based care is more of the kind of new change in the, in the industry, we're going to, what is it, 20 me, 50% of CMS will be Medicare Advantage here coming up in, by the end of 25, I believe the data said. You have to really be looking to that, in my opinion, as your North Star setting area because fee-for-service is going to just include a ton more things. And if you want to fit into value-based care, if that's going to be a smaller subset, from a logic perspective, start with a smaller set of opportunities. I think the the global appeal and the global reach you guys have had is something that's interested me in, in the last few years. As far back as 2020, digital diagnostic name drop the UAE and Saudi Arabia as emerging markets with a lot of opportunity. And then in 2022, the company signed a partnership with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and is partnering with a health and wellness firm there as well. And I guess I'm curious kind of at the evolution of that. Like you started in Corvo, Iowa, and, and that's pretty small relatively. And, and now you're partnering with a kingdom in, in some ways, doing business at least. So I guess to a casual outside observer, I guess, why that shift? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a shift so much as an expansion, right? right? It's similar to fee-for-service or value-based care. It's like, well, you start with one and think about the other while you're doing it. And I guess the parallels to be specific is, the same problems that exist, these dynamics around patients not being able to get access to diagnostic testing exist in all healthcare markets. I think I, I maybe be a little, might be a little unique in that I've had a lot of international healthcare just experience and exposure through some of my roles at Epic. And what I noticed years ago doing that is the same patient need is still there. How you pay and reimburse for it? Yes, that might technically be different, but the question really should be, hey, how does this get reimbursed in your country? Like, how do we go through that process? So really what we look for are just marketplaces where we see patients most desperately in need of a diagnostic that we believe we can fulfill fill the needs of at validated, ethically unbiased way. And Saudi Arabia has both a large population, high diabetes prevalence. They have a pathway to find for how AI will be compensated for and the, the work and value that drives. So that one's a natural fit. You look across other areas of the world, you'll still see the disease in need, but then you look at your reimbursement thought process and say, is this our top priority? And right now, the kingdom is mirroring a lot of the U.S. investment in this technology, both from a regulatory pathway perspective, but from a reimbursement perspective. So I guess it's a long-winded way of saying you follow where the reimbursement markets match up with the patient demand. 
Okay, cool. So I, I have a couple follow-ups. I guess, how did you guys get connected or I guess interested in that market? Because I know it lines up strategically, but I guess just how did that kind of come to fruition? And then I'm also curious, I, I've seen that their adult population, their the percentage of people that suffer from diabetes seems quite high. So I was wondering if you have any insight into why that is and, and how this can help. Sure. So how maybe more tactically, I think is what you're getting at is how do we get involved? Not why do we decide on, on Saudi Arabia? Mm-hmm. Having done international market development before, you'd start off with saying, like, if we are interested in this test, like, in access to this market, how does one go about doing that? And we just called a lot of friends and eventually along the way got connected to somebody that works in the medical device space. Hey, I've navigated this pathway before and I'm you know willing to be your Sherpa and help you understand here are the different departments or regulators you need to speak to. And you, you really just start working through what ends up feeling very much like any other large procurement process. I think the the biggest thing I would say, if, if others are listening to this to say like, how did you do it? It's it's really networking and, and finding that same fit in another market. But you also have to have a lot of patience because the timelines are just longer. You'll see a press release in 2002 about you know our memorandum of understanding with the Ministry of Health. But our first conversation started way back in 2018 with them, right? That's a, a three and a half year sales cycle, I think, from start to finish. So again, it's not what I would bet your company on, but it's a wonderful way to continue to expand your business and continue to help patients. Sure. And then do you have any insight onto why the, the percentage seems pretty high over there with those suffering from, from diabetes and those kind of problems? Is it higher than over here? It is higher than in the United States. You'll see that in several pockets around the world where it's higher or where it's lower. Some of that are just regional changes in genetics. Some some people are more predisposed to it than others. At the same time, though, you have to acknowledge like lifestyles changed a lot in a lot of the areas around the world. With so, in some cases, you've got just a demographic implication, but in nearly all of them, you've got a lifestyle change in any area that's trending up or, or higher higher relative to to others. And I mean, the Middle East trend in diabetes. I first saw that heading that direction myself personally on a trip there in 2011. So like, again, it's not a new trend. You're just connecting dots of, I remember learning about this in the last decade when I was over here. Hey, is this still an issue? Yes, it is. Great. Who should we talk to if we want to help solve that problem? And then recently, the company has also closed a pretty substantial Series B funding round. And it talked about, the the news release talked about accelerating the product roadmap, expanding distribution, and investing in sales and marketing. Could you give me any more insight into how the funds will be spent and and how you intend on scaling the company? Well, we used a portion of that, or or I should say a portion of our energy just in general, even just outside of funding. portion of where we're spending our time is on expanding our footprint organically through our our direct sales and marketing teams. And we've doubled business again last year as compared to the year before. So continuing to grow our existing footprint of customers. And then that's also been invested heavily or our time in the last, say, year since the Series B and getting our algorithm through a study to validate it for market clearance by the FDA on Baxter's handheld imager for primary care. They have about 8,000 connected devices out there in the marketplace and are largely viewed to be the front runner in on the hardware side, expanding access to the type of test that we automate. So there's a really nice natural fit there. Uh, that'll be a product that we are planning to have in the market by the end of this year. And that'll be a a really big commercial accelerant for the business, just having such a large 
partner in the space like Baxter driving the product adoption for it alongside our team. And then, of course, we've got deeper R&D that we continue to make progress on. We've got work in the age-related macular degeneration space, as well as glaucoma that's nearing uh, the beginning of some some study-related discussions, which that's when it starts really getting excited, exciting because you're getting close to putting a product in patients' hands when you're starting to, to leave the lab and starting to move into pre-trial clinical submission conversations. Cool. So Optum Ventures was one of the initial investors in digital diagnostics, maybe even in the recent funding round as well. And Sarah London, the, the senior principal at Optum at the time, She's now the CEO of Centene. She said that the healthcare industry needs to accelerate adoption of AI to reduce costs and and drive efficiencies. So I guess thinking from an industry-wide perspective on AI, that seems really important now, just given how AI is developing and and just about how the Medicare trust fund is projected to to run out of money in the next few years. 2031, I think, is the, the recent projections. It seems like the company was ahead of the curve or at least saw the writing on the wall a little bit with with AI, especially given how the, the FDA cleared your product at the time. I guess, what's the future of AI as you see it for providers? Well, I like to think of AI in a few different buckets, and they impact the provider differently. Ones that are less exciting, but I think have a really great opportunity to impact the total cost of care would be on the administrative revenue cycle management side. Tons of Repetitive tasks done by by people to support care that are not directly involved in providing that that type of care to patients. And in an ideal world, there's far fewer humans needing to be involved in facilitating that claims, claims, denial, appeal, payment, coding related activity, right? There's a big bucket there, but I think providers won't necessarily feel that directly, which is where you're going with your question. But where I think I can speak to things most confidently because I have the most direct experience with is on the kind of diagnostic or in the workflow type AI for providers. And I think you're going to see a few different things happen there that will directly impact the provider. I think you're going to see the provider move into more of a coach coordinator type of role. A lot of the tasks that I see as really good candidates for AI on the clinical side of things are areas where we can offload the work from the clinician because we can validate the machine is doing as good, if not a better job than the clinician, freeing their time up to work with the patient. I'd, I'd like to see providers spend more time working with patients on education, compliance, like running programs where care coordinators are making sure people are following through with their interventions or therapies after the intervention, than have them you know, sitting in a room looking at retinal images digitally on a slide fed to them as quickly as they can go through and, and mark the biomarkers. Like, one of those is a world that physicians went to medical school, working directly more with patients. And the other is where we were before when human cognition was the only thing that could, that could power a lot of these, these steps. So trying to uplift the physician, I think, is the, the big area that I see opportunity on the clinical side. And it's not a world without physicians. It's a world with physicians plugging into the spot where the human touch really matters. Do you see um, some AI products maybe um, having a hand in, in bias? I, I know that um, there's some concerns around that. How do you think AI should, or how do you think AI should be utilized so it, it eliminates bias and doesn't bring that into the equation? We're really, really big on this topic as a as a company. Actually, when Michael Dr. Moff founded the business, he started off by writing down his moral framework or ethical framework for developing AI. And avoiding racial bias was the cornerstone, if not the main point of what he was what he was doing when he was writing down rules that made sense to him as a physician. First, do no harm. 
You know, I should be treating all of my patients equally, regardless of their immutable characteristics, things that the docs just do. Like, what does the machine need to have essentially programmed into it? So we've been thinking about this for some time. There's, of course, AI you can build that avoids ethical bias. And there's also AI you can build that that further entrenches it or creates new ones. And there will be examples we can point to across the industry. But rather than just sitting here saying some are good, some are bad, what, what where we're really focused on and do a lot of advocacy and participate in a lot of industry dialogues on is really defining like how do you go about building ethical and unbiased AI, right? And it, for us, it starts with the data sourcing and product design step long before you're actually using the product in any type of clinical validation step. Then we also really believe really strongly in transparency into algorithms and like how are they performing and how do they perform over various populations where we have bias concerns in particular in the particular use case. We're big advocates of organizations continuing to monitor something we call continuous efficacy monitoring, the product in the field. And if you're building AI from a principal's perspective, we believe you should take on liability just like the doctor does when they diagnose a patient. So we're big on this. I could talk about it all day, but I think the general takeaway here is if I step back and try to sum it up is putting together a framework of like how you should build, design, and validate your products, we think is the, the way to really move towards a world where we have a lot of AI that we can trust that's without bias because we both validated beforehand. We have transparency in monitoring it and data is published on how it's actually doing. So there's there's a way to make it really work, we think. And we're really appreciative of the FDA taking a a strong stance on this and how open they've been to industry partners collaborating with them on those principles. Sure. So looking forward, is digital diagnostics eyeing any other acquisitions or any strategic partnerships? Are there is there anything that in the next year or two the company is really prioritizing? Well, we have lots of things on our radar that we'll probably just keep quiet for now. But say the general thematics would be we continue to look for partners on the both the hardware and distribution side that can expand our reach. So you'll definitely see more about that. And we continue to prioritize as we as we knock out these eye care projects that we're making good progress on. It's like, are we going next from an AI perspective outside of the eye is a big topic of conversation. And that'll eventually spur on some interesting partnerships, we think. Sure. Well, John, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Ayla Ellison. You can find out more about this topic in our show notes at fierce.com. Look for podcasts. And don't forget to tune in every Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.